0: Folks, This is Neil from The Hipstorians. Welcome to another episode in which we talk to Malachi O'Doherty, the journalist and author about growing up in Belfast and his recollections of the Troubles. Take it away, Derek. Hi, uh, thank you and welcome to the historians. and put in some hip into history, we hope. Your recent book, The Year of Chaos, has received some high praise. You know, the Sunday Independence described it a haunting portrait of a vanished place in time, written with such grace, tenderness, anger, and most of all, sorrow. And Richard O'Raw, who wrote Blanket Man, describes he was a literary surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to me, this book is certainly an important testimony. Obviously, over the pivotal year that shaped a troubled future. But I got such a real sense of you and how you lived it as a teenager, and now to record us looking through the rearview mirror as a mature adult. But I suppose we should begin with your background and childhood. I mean, did this tumultuous year motivate you to become a writer? And you know, in this book, you describe the anxiety you felt each morning, whereas some of your mates dealt with this with good old riot.
1: <laughs> I, I grew up in Riverdale in West Belfast. This was a housing estate built in the early 1950s at a time, I suppose, when the Second World War was still in recent memory. And so there were trappings of, of the war uh, around the estate as it was being built, old Nissan, and Fields, barbed wire and so on. And I grew up in a, an area which was predominantly Catholic, yes, I mean, I went to school in the Casement Park Pavilion uh, because the Catholic school hadn't been built yet. And uh, But some of our neighbours were policemen who cycled down to Dunmurray Police Station, which is where they, where they worked. At a time which, uh, you know, there was some sense that I was very minimally aware of in the 50s of an IRA campaign at that time. You know, I remember uh, seeing... Um, uh, a wee poster on a tree once just saying free all political prisoners and asking my mother what that was about and she said oh, that's a of nonsense you know <laughs> and also at one time uh, when we were in secondary school and doing chemistry my brothers and I started experimenting with making gunpowder and there was a boy in the local who was sneering at us for our efforts because he uh, clearly had some or was giving off vibes to suggest that he would far deeper knowledge of how to make explosives than we had. But um, the, uh, so a a Catholic education, Christian Brothers School education, a memory still of a period pre-troubles in the 1960s uh, where it seemed unlikely that the troubles would ever come back. You know, it seemed that we were in an era at a time when things were improving for Catholics, for everybody, uh, when sectarianism seemed to be something That was dying out, you know, and I came across a quote from Seamus Heaney in an article that he did in The Listener around the time of the early civil rights movement. And he said in that, that and he used an interesting phrasing. He said he was afraid that the old polarization was coming back, you know, and that also, uh, uh, you know, suggests a period of time in which the polarization was not extreme, was seen to be waning uh and and a time which people did not anticipate the the depth of violence uh the, and the extent of division and sectarian animosity that was really just only a few years away from them at, at that time and uh i was i don't know one of the big stories at that time if you're a, well you don't remember but christine <laughs> Taylor, <Keeler>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: christine you know there was a uh, Christine Keillor was this uh, uh, prostitute who'd got involved with uh, a British defence minister, John Profumo, mm-hmm. and, uh, and also involved with a uh, Russian agent, so there was a scandal. So the newspapers were that people were buying in big numbers in the late 60s were, were the people in the News of the World, you know, the salacious <laughs> London papers that people wanted to read to keep up with these uh, with these stories. And so the newsletter essentially in Belfast, uh, you know, a Protestant Unionist newspaper decided to cash in on this new interest in uh, the salacious and opened a paper called the Sunday News. And I had trained in, a, I did a journalism course, a very elementary journalism course, but got my first job in journalism on that Sunday News. But by the time uh, I came out into that uh, in August 1971, uh, the Sunday News had a wholly different job to the one that it had envisaged. I mean, you know, it had now become uh, a paper which certainly would have its wee stories about massage parlors and alleged wife swapping and the sex lives of students, you know. But also, uh, you know, on a Saturday night, it became the daily newspaper for the next day, covering the major atrocities in Belfast. So, mm-hmm. and we covered things like, uh, you know, uh, will the heavy rioting, the tarring and feathering. The bombings in the city, the Abercorn bomb, the Gerks bar bomb. You know, these were, these happened. A lot of these things happened on a Saturday and became the thing. So I was a young reporter. I was 21 in 1972. Very, very inexperienced. A deep sense, you know, of inadequacy in the face of all this, you know, which is perhaps reasonable because I was only young, you know, but still in all, it was a kind of slightly uh, shamefaced inadequacy in the face of it all. And uh, and years later, I came back to looking at that period and looking through the newspapers that we produced in that period and uh, trying to put the, the story into into a kind of shape. My first effort in that regard was in 2007, a book called The Telling Year, Belfast 1972. It's a fairly short book published by Gillen Macmillan <laughs> at that time. And then I came back to it again with a London publisher uh, for The Year of Chaos, and I was able to do the book not just through memory and archive but also through public records office archive uh the Cain website and and interviews with participants both in in the IRA and in the loyalist culture and put together what I hope is uh, a substantial work of literary journalism that's the way yeah. I think of it as something yeah. which stands as a record now of that mm-hmm. year and uh, and 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 makes up and compensates in some way for the inadequacy with which I faced events at that time.
0: Yeah, that's interesting now. That's interesting for sure. Yeah, I I certainly feel that it's very important. My my eldest kid is 27. He doesn't know anything. There isn't a huge volume of history. And I suppose what we're trying to do here the historians is to kind of get history popular with a younger generation to understand effects that it has on the society in which they live today. Yeah. There was one interesting thing I was reading, and again, I wasn't, you know, funnily enough, I wasn't aware of it, but the, the tartan gangs, you know, and th- that was really the precursor to the UDA, right?
1: That was the precursor, yeah, it was one of the precursors. There were the, I mean, there was also the vigilantes, and the vigilantes weren't actually tartan gangs, but they were uh, they were men who basically patrolled the Protest- streets and Protestant areas, on the lookout for strangers and the lookout for any threat from the IRA. And, uh, and they evolved into the UDA. But they, but well at the point that they did, then they pulled in the Tartan gangs, you know. Okay. And, and said, right, you know, if you're involved with this, then you're, you're under orders and you're taking it seriously. And you have to cut out all this fighting among yourselves, you know. And this yeah. isn't now, we're not now talking about, I mean, Tommy Andrews, who was one of the Tartan gang members, who told me the whole story about how, um, you know, when they were, they were pulled in by the, you know, they were invited to a meeting by the, the formation of the UDA. And basically the, they were in, in a community center type building with a, a table at the front and guys sitting at the table and guns on the table. And the guy said, look, you know, uh, it's the end of messing around, you know, right. and if you're, if you, if you're not willing to kill now, you can leave. But that's what we're approaching now. We're, we'll, we'll be killing people. And yeah. if you don't want to be part of that, you can leave the room. And Tommy says nobody left the room.
0: Wow. wow. That's chilling. Yeah. yeah. Chilling. I and mean, These would have been, like, these would have been, quote unquote, normal people. In terms, like they weren't psychopathic killers. Um, they oh, no, would
1: been... I, yeah. no, I don't think they were psychopathic. I think certainly, I mean, some of the some of the men that I spoke to, like uh, Bobby Niblock and Tommy Andrews, who were in the in the Tartan gangs. Well, a very interesting thing, an observation that I made in talking to them was that in some ways, there was a difference between people like me who were 18, 19 at the start of the Troubles and people who were only 14 at the start of the Troubles. I mean, I people of my generation, and it's only a very small gap of difference between us, but we had a memory of the, the before times. You know, we had a memory, it had Protestant girlfriends, We'd gone yeah. dancing in the Aster and Romanos and the Starlight, you know, and uh, you know, and these guys hadn't. These guys lived in a much more circumscribed life, even though it was only like two years younger than us, and yeah. uh, and and they were hardened by that. And Tommy, for instance, you know, talks about you know uh, his his you know seeing uh, his mother crying when news came in of a member of the family having been shot and having to move out of their house. Um, Bobby Nibluck talks about the, you know, the riots with with Catholics, but I mean, the, uh, uh, you know, the, and the, the intimidation of Catholics that he was involved in, in the area and so on. So, so those guys at 14, 15, 16 were an awful lot harder Mm. than we were at 14, 15 and 16,
0: you know, Mm. and they're harder because they're living in that intercommunal thing. Mm. And, and interesting as well, except for, I mean, it must have put you in such a position as well within your peer group that you made a decision like this wasn't your thing. You weren't going down the road of community violence. You, you yeah. were, you know, and that must have put a lot of pressure on you as a young man.
1: Well, there were difficulties. I was, I mean in uh, in 1972, the IRA started barricading uh, what they called no-go areas. or Maybe it was the media first called them no-go areas. But there were basically there were areas in uh, in Anderson's time, the Falls Road, where where entry into those estates was was through a barricade and being checked by vigilantes or by, by the IRA. So uh, so here am I you know, living in a housing estate. Uh, I go through barricades to get out of it, and I'm going into the middle of town to work in a newspaper. And on my you know you guys know journalism. In journalism, you interact with the police and you interact with the army press office and so on. You know, and you go out to events like a bombing or a shooting and, and you talk to soldiers on the ground, you know, but you don't want your neighbors to see you talking to soldiers, you know, because there's that that whole kind of suspicion. And I mean, I remember once, uh, you know, a major Barry King, you know, uh, uh, phoned me up at the Sunday News and invited me to come up to the, the you know, the base to have a few drinks with the boys, you know. And and I was just completely appalled at it. This man completely <laughs> ignorant, as no he notion at all. And I said, Well, you know, I do live in Riverdale. And he says, Oh, don't worry, we'll drop you off home afterwards, you know. <laughs> like, that would have been that would have been a death sentence for me. My family would have been thrown out of the area if yeah. I'd gone along with that. But yeah. also there was uh, there were people, neighbors in the area, you know, who well, basically, who were conspicuously carrying guns? away the place when the barricades were up, you know. What?
0: Well, what well, well, yeah. can I ask about you? What were the points of of barricades? What was it? Just a show of strength? What was, the, was there Was any purpose? What's the purpose behind yeah. us?
1: Well, I, I. Well, I mean, I think the purpose, in the sense, was to define territory as as core republican territory. I mean, a housing estate might be barricaded, and there might be only twenty members of the IRA in that whole housing estate estate. But, you know, if the barricade is there, it kind of creates the impression like a wall mural or the flags that the whole area is characterized by that. I think that might be one part of it. Another part of it was to simply if you had barricades up, you know, then the army just couldn't drive on in, you know, without noticing it, without you seeing them. And you could, you know, you could behind the barricades. They did build bombs, which they would deliver into the center of town. You know, they did on the guns imported into their area. Uh, you know, they did store guns and uh, and come out from behind the barricades, you know, at, uh, at night to fire on uh, army vehicles on the main road. So was, I think it's a, there was a simple military logic to it as well, you know, that you could just uh, keep your people safe. And if you had people on the lookout at the barricades, then you would get a warning very quickly if the army was coming into the area. On the other hand, then the army had to change tactics because you were getting what were called duck squads. <laughs> You know, and these right. were, these were patrols of soldiers, not in vehicles, you know, the vehicle would have dropped them off mm-hmm. and they would be, you know, be basically blackened faces and moving through the gardens, you know, and I don't know what they were actually doing, but I mean, there's the story in the book, which is quite embarrassing to tell, but I, I tell it because it's true that, um, you know, one night I was home and I'd had three pints of beer with a neighbor and was a, a wee bit heady and, um, my father came into the bedroom and said, you know, there's a duck squad in the back garden, so, so he put the light out. And instead of putting the light out, I opened the window and blew a whistle at them, <laughs> you know, which, was, which was the standard warning to the IRA. Oh, now, I wasn't particularly interested in warning the IRA, but I was interested, I suppose, in being mischievous. And I did this. <laughs> and immediately, you know, there was a silence and everyone said, oh God, what's he done? And then there was this thundering uh, kicking at the back door. Oh no! As, you know, and I went to the stairs, and I was there with my brothers and my father, looking down in horror as this soldier stepped into the living room <laughs> and kicked the door in with a rifle in his hand and a blackened face. And to tell you the truth, the most the worst possible thing that could have happened at that moment, and this is true, would have been that he would have taken my brother or my father.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? that would yeah. I
1: wouldn't have been able to live with that. So yeah. I stepped forward and said it was me, and he took me, and he got a grip on my collar and he lifted me up off the floor. I was actually lifted off the floor. There's a man who seemed to me to be about seven foot tall. And I can right. still recall the smell of his tunic, you know, the this kind of greasy yeah. diesel oil smell of the dirt of his tunic. And then yeah. my poor mother screaming her head off in her in her pink nighty, you That's know, right. just screaming her <laughs> head off at him. But he took <laughs> me out of the house and he put me up against the wall and he pointed his rifle at me. And he said, I'm gonna shoot you, Patty. You know? Oh my God. And I was I was, you know, I I believed him, but I was in a state of shock, so I wasn't—you uh, know—my emotions weren't engaged, and mm-hmm. my my reasons. And I said to him, "Well, if you shoot me here, the bullet might go through. Could we do it over there? Because the fear of a bullet going through me and in, into the house—I mean, that's how my brain was working. This I is don't... what happens if you've been slapped by the Christian Brothers every week." Yeah, <laughs> you <know>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get used to it. And so, you, well, anyway, I don't know what it was, but it was—it was shock, I suppose.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and he just got on he just gave me a kick. You know or a slap or something uh you know the stupid patty and he dragged me by the hair down the garden and mm. he dragged me through a hedge which afterwards when i was coming back home i tried to get back through that hedge and couldn't because it was so impenetrable but he dragged me through it and gave me uh-huh. a good kicking and the how, shirt was how, torn out. How, hmm? sorry how old were you about 21 21 at that time 21. was i 21 <laughs> maybe only 20 maybe still just 20. i think just 20. about october november of 1970 so it would have been 20. My gosh. No, I would have been, 71, yeah, about 20, 71. And they gave me electric shocks, you know, and I, you know, they put me up against a, a pig, the vehicle, and they dropped a chain from the vehicle to the road. And I could see this flare of kind of pink and blue flame from the chain as it touched the tarmac. And uh, so I suppose they were earthing it. And that must mean that the, the actual electrical impulses that they, that they gave me were quite weak. Because I, I hardly, to tell you the truth, I hardly felt them. Uh, okay. It's a kind of tingling in my hands. But I hadn't felt the kicking either. You know? Yeah. So, uh. so, so, so anyway, um, and they just basically asked me stupid questions. And and I expected to be taken in and interned because that was the time of internment. But uh, ultimately, they just let me go and decided I was stupidly bastard, you know? And, and, <laughs> and, and I went back, you know, and I went back to the house and went into work on the Sunday news the next day with a black eye and bought sunglasses, sunglasses in November. <laughs> in <Belgrade. Yeah. laughs> I worked in sunglasses in the office to cover my black eye. Um, there, yeah,
0: there, there's, a, there's a picture in the book, Malachi, with, with this caption, I'll just read it out for you. British soldiers on a side street in the nationalist Falls Road area of Belfast, 7th of May, 1971. And then you add, I know how those wee twins feel. So, a picture it's a picture yeah. of uh, presumably a dad with two, as you say, in your vernacular, we uh, twins, yeah. and uh, they're walking past quite a lot yeah. of army activity. And there's soldiers sitting, mm. what do you mean? So, it's obviously, younger than, than when you were that instant when you were 20, 21. Yeah. What do you mean? You know, how those we twins, it's a private
1: joke. I'm a twin, I'm a yeah, people who know me know I'm a twin, and uh, and um, I'm I'm uh, a you know, and my twin brother and I look very much alike uh, mm-hmm. and people people who don't know as well can't tell the difference between us so in a sense that was it uh, because the young young twins are looked at all the time you know yeah. you study everywhere you go people are looking at you and studying you mm-hmm. or they're getting you to stand side by side to see if you can tell the difference you know uh, yeah. So, and you know, and especially when your parents dress you alike, you know, if either of you ever have twins, don't be dressed
0: alike. <laughs>
1: but that's all that is. You know,
0: <laughs> how would you have felt walking past? Because I tell you, I, in in the south, for want of a better word, the north is very distant to us. I was born yeah. in 1971, just when you were coming in, yeah. coming of age. But I remember my dad was a racing correspondent for the Irish Press. They used to cover race force meetings, which would take him over the border. He'd come back with these fantastic stories. Mm-hmm. Now I was really into history at the time—British military history, you know, the Second yeah. World War and stuff. So I remember him bringing me one time when we were stopped, we were pulled over at a British Army checkpoint, and to me, it was just fabulous. It, it wasn't,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: because there was it, these guys were always in comic books. And here they were yeah. in real life—these yeah. young squaddies with the black face and the huge. Uh, yeah. Weapons. Yeah, ours. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, those ones, the big long ones. And he would he lean into the car. I remember he had a very distinctive, I don't, I don't think I'd ever heard an English accent at that, that point. <laughs> yeah. And he was trying to be intimidating, but he was probably only only kid himself, 18, 19 years of age, these guys were. And my dad was very cool and calm and collected about it. And after we drove off, I was going, That was cool. You know, <laughs> to me, it well, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And he, and Well, I dad, suppose
1: you were. You were taking a lead from your father. Your father wasn't afraid, therefore you didn't feel there was any need to be afraid of yourself.
0: He, he wasn't afraid, yeah. but I, I did get the sense of him that he was staying calm. It was yeah. you know, to him with his yeah. kid in the back seat. He was probably a little bit nervous, but yeah. you know, and as a journalist, yeah. I remember him showing the press card and they took yeah. the press card off him, and yeah. they were trying. Yeah. It was, for him, it was probably a bit intimidating. And then when I exclaimed, "Oh, that was that was great! Oh, that's amazing!" he's just gone enough now.
1: Definitely, yeah. You the know, press it's... card was very handy. The press card was very handy. You think about it. Yeah. I mean, the loyalists have killed a couple of journalists. The IRA uh, almost never touched journalists. You mm-hmm. know? And mm-hmm. uh, the the army and the police would tend to be civil to you. You know. Yeah. A uh, press card was quite. And I remember once uh, it was even before I got the press card, uh, the the office had given me a letter saying to whom it may concern, would who already is a reporter for the Sunday News. And then I, one night, we heard an awful lot of shooting over in East Belfast, and I drove over. I wasn't driving Stephen Riley, my friend, another reporter was driving. But we drove over to the Nards Road and, and basically got into an area which was sealed off by the vigilantes. So this was before the emergence of the UDA. And, uh, and basically, the vigilantes stopped the car. But they were stopping the car basically to direct us to safety from the shooting because they okay. knew where the shooting was. But they demanded identification. You know, and I showed them the letter, and the letter—the letter might as well have said, "This man is a Catholic." You know, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, this man is a TIG. You know, because yeah. uh, because of the name Malachi hurting, So, yeah. so you know, they were they were very they were perfectly civil about it. You know, but, yeah. But within months of that, they were taking random Catholics off the road and shooting them dead in back alleys. You know? Oh my gosh! But yeah, uh, but certainly. Um, uh, certainly, the press card enabled you ac- got you access and got you a polite responses. Usually, in dealing mm. with the police and the army, um, yeah. and got you but, not always. There were other times. I remember once we were with uh, with Paddy Boyce, who's was a journalist. There was uh, with, I was with him and a couple of others, and we were up at Carlisle Circus in Belfast. We were, had heard something had happened, and we were looking around. I can't remember what it was, and uh, a soldier told us to get off the street. And uh, Paddy decided to get stroppy with him, you know. And uh, I remember Paddy shouting at him, says, you've got press officers in Lisbon being paid 80 pounds a week to put a good image in you people, and you're just a shower of thugs. And the guy pulled a pistol. The guy drew a pistol and pointed the pistol right there at Paddy's chest. And well, said,
0: just get the fuck out of here. You know? were, were all your experiences with the with the army negative or, or were there some like how did, how, how did you in the community I know you weren't directly involved on one side or the other mm-hmm. but how were they viewed like I mentioned earlier some of them would have been very young squaddies themselves yeah. were they university hated, or did you have any sort of weirdly positive experiences or?
1: yeah well I remember there was one guy and he was a little guy with I, I just remember he had ginger hair right I don't remember what regiment <laughs> he was in but it was one of those occasions when you're in the center of town waiting for a bomb to get all, go off. You've been told there's a bomb, such and such a place, stand here uh, behind this line and, and wait and, you'll, and the bomb goes off. right? So I kept talking to this soldier who would have been about my own age and, and, and he was friendly. And a few days later, I was walking around town on some other business and I saw him and I stopped for a wee chat and how are you doing and all the rest of it. But on another occasion, I saw him up in Anderson's town and I just blanked him. I just walked past him as if I hadn't seen him, because I couldn't. Cha- I couldn't chance, you couldn't uh, chance my neighbours yeah. seeing me, uh, the IRA men in, in the neighbourhood, seeing me being uh, being friendly with the soldiers. But the, the,
0: the the military and the politicians did get it wrong. They underestimated the vibe of what was going on behind the scenes, and I, I think with the with the. The paras, I mean, are somewhat even a little bit trigger happy or just saw everybody in the community as a threat and weren't able to discern who, who was and who wasn't. I mean, what I yeah, was getting at there is that shock and murder of a 14-year-old uh, eating, uh, eating ice cream. But after the riot, and, and obviously that fed into people obviously becoming active with, with the paramilitaries. And it, all that kind of stuff, and I think you you mentioned as well about your was it your brother coming back through a train station, and you would yeah, walk past yeah, the Protestant yeah. area. Yeah. Yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Well,
1: the Paris essentially, I the Paris were a frightening presence on the street, even if they didn't say anything to you. By the yeah. way, of, by the swagger of them, they were oh, silverbacks. Yeah. You know, they were they were they were beasts. But yeah. and and you know, when we were when I was getting my taxi home at night from the Sunday News. You know, going up the Falls Road, you would see these men crouched in doorways, just tracing your movement with the, through the rifle sights. Like, mm-hmm. But Roger, the story about Roger, my brother, is this: he had been, uh, he had. There were two basic routes to Riverdale. You could come up to Lisburn Road, or, or well, three. You could come up to and the Lisburn Road, bus. Or you could come up the train station uh, off at of Finnehy, or you get the bus up the Falls Road. So he and his friend had taken the train to Finnehy and got off the train. But essentially, you were there in a Protestant area, you know, and we had done this in, in earlier years, comfortably and safely. But yeah. on this occasion, uh, some Protestant boys uh, spotted them. Knew, by the way, they turned right towards Riverdale, that they're Catholics. So mm. they chased them. And, uh, and Roger and his friend ran, and they ran into a, a little housing area. And the, his friend got away. He got home up to Riverdale while Roger was basically being surrounded by these guys and, and, and beaten and the guy basically knew what to do when he got to the barricade. He just says, "The prods have got Roger O'Doherty down the road," and some yeah. of the boys, some of the IRA guys, just went down with guns straight away and fired over their heads, and, yeah. and that scattered them and, and, and got them out. Now, I don't go along with the, the rationale of the IRA as a defender of the Catholic community, but there's no doubt that they did save my brother on that occasion. You know, yeah, he would have been, he would have been. I mean. You don't know what would happened I mean, they might have killed him or they might have just given him a, a a beating, they might, you know, but but it was a pretty horrible situation for him, you know.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, especially, yeah, young men and all that. It must, like, I try to always imagine these things now as if I would be there and how would I react, yeah, and, and yeah. how would I feel. And yeah, it's, it really is incredible stuff. And with the politicians, you know, like Faulkner thought the preceding 50 years had kind of uh, had worked, so why, <laughs> yeah. why, why, that, that's right, isn't he? Well,
1: he it he, he was still quite reasonably by his lights in his uh, summits with uh, Ted Heath and with, with, with yeah. Lynch, the, the Taoiseach, he was still basically holding on to the idea that democracy is about majority rule, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he had the idea certainly that you could, he, he would concede to bring Catholics onto committees advising cabinet ministers, you know, that would be a concession to the Catholic community. But he wouldn't have a nationalist. He, he would have thought, well, it's totally illogical. And you can see his reasoning, you know, at that point, it's totally illogical to have an Irish nationalist who wants the Northern Ireland to be absorbed into the Irish Republic sitting in <laughs> a cabinet in Northern Ireland. So he so the kind of thinking that was to emerge a year or two later towards the uh, power sharing and 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 an Irish dimension. That was really quite alien to Faulkner uh, in, in 1972. And it was something that he wasn't able to, you know, get his head around. So the kind of thinking, you know, the the you know, and even Heath and in his interactions with the Taoiseach Jack Lynch, you know, uh, you know, was not about saying, what about it? What should we be doing together here to sort this out? It was basically just the civility of of acknowledging Lynch and maybe trying to get his his signature onto onto plans of his own, I about mean, how to do, yeah. think, do you things. But yet it came very quickly after that. I mean, we're moving out of the period covered by the book, but into 1973, the Sunningdale talks and so on, with the Irish government involved, and with a, a clear determination that the way ahead was power sharing, fundamentally the model that was ultimately accepted in
0: 1998. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Interesting. With, and there was a lot of obviously big events as well around with bombings at that time as well, 1972. Obviously, was it was the year where I think was the was the worst year of the troubles yeah. as far as yeah. death and casualties. And one in particular was, I suppose, the IRA's attempt at shop and all with with Black Friday. So, were you? you were Friday, were, you in, were yeah. you in the city? You were in the city. I was in the city on Bloody
1: Friday. Um, I, I started at lunchtime. I had I was out with Eddie, one of the reporters. And I actually went into a little clothes shop and bought a little suede jacket, you know, uh, which I was really impressed by. It was a bit like a cowboy jacket. Right. Nice. <laughs> anyway, you know, and, uh, and it cost nine guineas. So I wrote a check for nine guineas. And, um, and we were walking back to the office when we heard the first explosion. Yeah. And we weren't particularly alarmed by that because it had become quite common to hear, hear explosions. But then we heard more. And when we got back to the office... Uh, there was a sense of alarm setting in among people, you know, that this was really quite serious. There were more bomb reports coming in. And, uh, you know, uh, I there was a, a girl there in a neighbouring office, to ours. I, I presume involved in some part of the production side of the paper at administration or secretarial level. But she was screaming her head off. She was in bits. And oh, I didn't know it at the time, but I learned afterwards she had been involved she had been caught up in the bombing of the milk marketing board she had been working there and and she was literally just flailing in a panic you know and her friends were carrying her down the stairs as we all went down the stairs down to the print room uh you know to, to take shelter and just stand and wait until this rate of bombing stopped and anyway, um, and when i was with uh, Stephen riley i was standing beside Stephen, and Stephen just kind of looked up at the ceiling and i looked up and realized that, you know, it was like one of these old factory rooms, you know, with serrated roof, you know, with skylights on yes. every serration, you know. And I thought, and you know, I thought if a bomb goes off here, you know, we're just going to be short and fast, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but you're thinking to yourself, do I, do I tell everybody this? Yeah. <laughs> to stay here. And, but eventually we went back up and the bombing had, had stopped. Jim, the uh, news editor, phoned in to say, look, I've been caught up in one of the bombs and." careful road. old. I, I'm okay if my wife calls, just tell her I'm all right, and I'll be back in the office soon. And uh, and and we got to back to doing whatever we were doing, you know, although in this quite changed atmosphere. And then Jim did come back. And then I took a phone call, and the phone call was from Jerry O'Hare, and Jerry O'Hare was the press officer of the Belfast Brigade of the IRA. And I'm right. the, the junior reporter, you know, who, who still hasn't got the journalistic nouse, you know, and how to deal with the situation. So I just said, what the fuck was that about? You know? And Jim reached over and took the phone off me and he covered the phone with his hand and he says, Molly, don't be talking to contacts like that, you know. But yeah. I had the first I had the first conversation, yeah, I had the first interview or conversation with a senior member of the Belfast Brigade of the IRA. He'd done all that bombing after the moment. Mm-hmm. And 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 I just uh, I wasn't remotely interested in hearing his excuses or his mm. explanation. You know, I was just disgusted by the whole thing. I went afterwards, as I often did after work, I went to Kelly Sellers Bar and, uh, for a pint and, um, uh, the news was on the television and, uh, we saw that footage of the fireman uh, shoveling human flesh at Oxford Street bus station. Um, uh, it has been rebroadcast a couple of times since, but, um, a very, but people in the bar were laughing at it, you know. Wow. People in the bar were laughing at it. Now, I don't I don't know why they were laughing. I don't understand it. You know, not seek to understand it or explain it. But the similar reality is that this came on the television and there were some of the people in the bar were laughing at that image and laughing at that report. And yeah. if you look carefully at that report, if you ever do get a chance to see it, you'll see that the fireman, uh, the, fi- the group of firemen dealing with that incident which was the one the most bloody of all the incidents on the day. They're dressed in dress uniform. That wasn't a working day for them. That was their graduation day at the end of training. Oh, and
0: nice. they,
1: they were in dress uniform for, for, for their passing out parade or whatever it is firemen did at that time when they got reports of the bombing. And then they were re- redirected from their own uh, graduation ceremony or whatever uh, to yeah. deal with the bombing. So that's an 18-year-old fireman and his first job was a fully really qualified fireman.
0: Yeah. Shovel,
1: shoveling human flesh. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Shocking, shocking. Shocking
0: stuff. Shocking, shocking. The, the book is described, as Derek, at the start of the you said about it, It's almost like, looking in the rear view mirror. It's like, like a letter to your 18-year-old self. Aye. Uh, yeah. If there's a message at all, or if you're trying to tell your 18-year-old self a message or anything at all, what would that be, can you sum up?
1: Well, it would be, forgive yourself for being so inadequate at the time you know because you were only 18 you were only 19 20 whatever you know mm-hmm. um there were other journalists around me uh who who responded much more professionally and efficiently to it and who built careers on it he stayed in northern ireland i got out at the end of 72 and okay. uh, and and was away for seven years before coming back so so you know i i think maybe in later years i kind of rebuked myself for not having got the professional opportunity out of it or or you, you know or not having responded to those circumstances or I'm drinking too much you know yeah. and 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 not really not really getting a handle on the story in the way that I might have done in an alternative life you know I might have been a bit more stable a bit more uh, diligent you know a bit yeah. more thoughtful and kept my head and and, and and told the story. So in a sense, that's what I would say to the, the 18, 19-year-old the 18, self. is just, you know, you are just a child. You know, yeah. End, you know, just just accept that and don't beat yourself up about uh, not being the great heroic war, war reporter, you know? Yeah. Um, and why did you leave? Why, why did you
0: leave?
1: Well, I left, I mean, uh, I, I, I suppose I left because I was sickened by it. But an opportunity yeah. came along in a very surprising way. I took a holiday in August of 72, and I went off with a friend to hitchhike to Amsterdam. Mm. And the first lift we got hitchhiking out of Lancaster was two girls in a dormobile. And we went to Amsterdam <laughs> with them, you know, in this dormobile. There's always a girl. And we, and we, always a girl. There was always a girl. We traveled around Belgium and Holland together in a dormobile and slept on beaches, you know, for two oh, yeah. weeks, you know. And uh, I thought this is this is this is the life I want because actually the other part of living in Belfast at that time was you couldn't get laid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Whereas if you went to um, if you went off hitchhiking in England and you know, a trip to Amsterdam, then you could get laid.
0: Then you could <laughs> get laid. Yeah, you weren't getting laid regardless of being Catholic or a Protestant. Yeah. No, I? no, it was
1: just, it was just because the, you know the, the, it was such a terrifying atmosphere and yeah. you know, the dark roads at night when you're out at night. The social scene breaking down in time. The only socializing was in these drinking clubs, your chavines, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and everybody was drinking too much and getting pissed. And so, yeah. so that was that was my experience. Of it. At least I wasn't getting laid. Maybe somebody <laughs> else was. But. For for
0: what it's worth, Malik, I think I would have taken the route that you did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I> <laughs> it sounds like it's, more yeah. fun.
1: <laughs> yeah, to be honest. Yeah. I, well, that's the fact. I was more interested in the sexual revolution, you know. Right. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd be
0: forgiven for that of 18, 19 year olds Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. for sure, you know. And then the city that you, you live in today, and what you, where you move back to, like how, how do you see that? You know, how has that evolved? And how do you think the the city has learned to live with its past?
1: Well, the city had changed, even when I came back in 79, the city had changed very radically. The level of violence had tailed off. They're talking about the level of violence in 72 when I left, of somewhere close to 500 people being killed in that year, uh, yeah. coming down by in 1980 to a kind of running average of around 100 a year. So it okay. was well, a lot more peaceful. Also, the, I think the army and the police had basically got their act together better in terms of how to interact with young people. And maybe it was just because I was older. So I mean, you know, maybe uh, every cop treats a man of thirty differently from how they treat a man of twenty. Maybe I don't know. But the other thing is that they had their intelligence had gathered to the extent that they knew who the players were in the loyalist movements and in the republican and in the IRA and so on. So they had a file on me already. They knew that. Oh, that's already, He's all right. He's <coughs> not. Uh, he's not on our, our watch list um mm-hmm. you know so 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 it was very different then, but still at all, you know it was um it was you know through the eighties and the nineties I mean, I think there was two pizza places on the great on great Victoria Street, you know, i mean you couldn't go out for a meal, the bars that you went to you know if you the city centre was closing at six in the evening when people were getting out and barriers were closed, you know, I remember mm-hmm. once I was actually with a famous person, Lionel Shriver, the novelist, who was a friend oh, yeah. of mine. And we were in town one night and uh, at something, I can't remember what it was, maybe a poetry reading or something. And she with her bicycle. And when we were leaving the center of town, we had to climb over this big barrier. She so had to actually climb up over the barrier, carrying her bicycle over the top and letting the <laughs> bike down on the other side without like, dropping it. So so it was a closed city and it was a dark yeah. city. You know, the streetlights were off and out, you know, for miles down a road, you might see, you know, streetlights at all. And, um, uh, and, and people were more apprehensive about leaving their own areas. So people were, people were so used to being in this, staying in the streets that they grew up in. I mean, yeah. I remember a very small story, but it is indicative. Um, and this, and a wee boy across the street from us, wee boy, he was 18, had got a job offer in the city hall, right? But he didn't know where the city hall was. So okay. his mommy, his mommy took him into town, walked him to the city hall, on the bus, walked him to the city hall and showed him how to go into the city hall for his job interview and waited outside so that she could take him back to the bus. Now, not many 18 year olds need their mommy to hold their hand and take them into the centre of town. Or do
0: you want them to tell that. Or that?
1: How want them to? Yeah. But that was, that was how things were at those times that there were young people now growing up in housing estates and in effectively ghetto areas where they didn't know anything beyond the areas that they were immediately familiar with. You know? Well, well so.
0: I had never... Like, I had a, a, a... My step-grandfather was Coddison from Portis or Mass. Yeah. I never really got much further than, than there. And when he passed away in, in 87, I know, 89 it was, you didn't up all that much. But I never visited Belfast until I was 40, in fact. Mm. So there the, I've been to so back several times since. It's a really... Beautiful city. I've rented bikes and cycled around, done the black taxi tour, which we're going to do as a video episode. It's a story. Yeah. But it's a true, like it's, say, it's, it's, it looks nicer than Dublin, in fact, to be honest it's with it. you. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it always, it always surprises me and it surprises me often that people love Belfast. I meet Americans who come here mm. and, and the, you know, they just love the place. Stay for a wee while, you have to go back and then they try to come back here again because they're so yeah. fond of it, you know. It's it's absolutely true. People do love Belfast, but today I was with my friend uh, Frank, who uh, you know, and we were walking down Donegal Street, and I just, I was telling him that I used to work in Donegal Street at the Sunday News, and I said, "You remember there was the bomb over there? Six people killed in that bomb, Mm -hmm. and uh, and a couple of weeks after it, uh, somebody found a leg on the roof of our building. You know, that's Mm -hmm. you know, and, and." and we don't talk. About, we don't talk about this among ourselves. It was just was that wee moment when, yes. it, when it just occurred to me to just tell him about that. You know? Yeah. And so like,
0: uh, as you're walking around, the Maliki, the ghosts, of the past, for for want of a better t-shirt expression, are still there. You can see certain points, certain street corners, certain doorways where you. I saw can them. do
1: if I want to, but I don't normally. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't yeah. normally. There was the, the, the I've. I think on about four occasions in the past few years, I've been asked if I would take tours. You yeah. Know? And mm-hmm. I have taken tours around, uh, around West Belfast and uh, up, up the falls and down the shankle and so on. Um, and, and then, you know, I can, I can bring it all back to, to memory. I can show them bullet hole strikes and walls, for instance. Oh. I can show yeah. them where bombs went off. Uh, I can show them where the Abercorn Bar was. And I can show them, uh, um, in McGurk's bar, and I can show them uh, mm-hmm. uh, Casement Park where the two corporals were killed, and cool. and stuff like that. And, and and you know, but I don't do much of that. I only do that on special, especially if asked. And when I do that, then it all becomes uh vividly alive for me because mm-hmm. it it's in my own personal memory. So yeah. The stuff that I have to go and research. You
0: know. Yeah, yeah. Abso- absolutely. And and do you think that's it? Like there will be. Never return to 1971
1: 72. Is, is that it? I don't know. See,
0: I don't mm-hmm. know. See, I think
1: the whole apprehension of, uh, of around the possibility of a border pole and the united Ireland uh, yeah. Could, yeah. Could, could, could bring back violence. The sectarian division is still very, very, very strong.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the, the peace walls are still there. So that's the peace
1: walls are still there. Excellent. You throw a dart at a map of Belfast. And then on any street that it lands on is likely to be 90% Catholic or 90% Protestant. Right, and right. indeed 100% yeah. Catholic or 100% Protestant. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. awful, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. now then we had and we're, uh, we're, we had the visit of King Charles and yeah. Sinn Féin performing so well in relation to that. And yeah. I mean, I, and I think that does have a really strong psychological impact because Absolutely. as children, we express the sectarianism through... Yeah. Fuck the Queen and fuck the Pope, you know. Yeah. And if the you know if the British monarchy, you know, is a, like the Queen coming to Dublin, you know, is effectively saying, Look, you can leave me out of this, guys, you know. Uh, mm. don't 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 think don't you unionists think that you can be insulting Republicans on my behalf because I'm mm. buying to Republican martyrs here. I am yeah. paying my respects to them. And similarly, you know, you know, they, you know, the uh, uh the amity between uh, between King Charles, as we hesitate to call him, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and I mean Alex Maskey was Alex Maskey was a hardy man, you know, you know, yeah. and there he's still paying homage to to the dead queen. It's yeah. uh, you know, and Protestants are responding to that. They're responding right. very, very warmly to that. I mean, people that are very strong anti-IRA unionists. Uh, so one of them, a friend of mine, Ian Acheson, and they tweeted to Michelle O'Neill, He's, he just said, "You rose to the occasion." Thank you. You know.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So
1: maybe, maybe that will have a political fallout. But the other side of it is, it might have a, might have a, it might have a demoralizing effect on some unionism. You know, they might say, "Well, these people are now, these people are now being fated everywhere, and we are still being considered the problem." You know. Yeah. So there can be. There can be blowbacks from these things that you don't expect. You know? uh, yeah, I think patience
0: is the key, isn't it? It's just a, maybe at some point, yes, it, yeah. it can be done. But I,
1: I think do yeah. we have the time to be patients before the first border poll? I don't know. You know, yeah. I mean, I think there is such disillusionment with the quality of government in England, and if we were to see Scotland going independent,
0: mm-hmm. uh, if
1: we were to see economic collapse in Britain because of uh, Brexit, yeah. there is all these new reasons for thinking about a United Ireland they weren't around in 1972. Yeah, Britain and Ireland were going into the EU together in 1972. Heath Heath and Lynch thought that going into the EU would end the troubles you know right they wanted to go in together with that put behind them
0: yeah and that obviously didn't work out but yeah no it's it's fantastic Malachi this has been great I mean you just if you're bringing the whole thing alive and hopefully Mm -hmm. you know obviously permanent records for future generations now yep. this all goes up on, on, online and you never know we, we might actually pitch up for that uh, guided tour yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> get a few of your friends and pay me £100 a hundred pound ahead there you go perfect perfect <laughs> okay, you well. you yeah, okay, love it. excellent well, all well, the well, best you. then thank
0: you